This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa and are on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. We're also on Channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spomela Lezondi and I'm with Joala Netulo, Wisani Matebula and Figile Lengwati. It's 1700 hours Central African time. Let's take a look at the top stories. Opposition leaders and civil society in Kenya seeking amendments in the constitution. The problem of drug shortages in Malawi's public hospitals continues. In economics, the global oil glut likely to take longer than expected to clear and may depress oil prices. And in sports, the WADA commission says its 2012 report had in effect been sabotaged. Here's Jolana Tula with your news. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. Somali militant group Al-Shabaab has released a video showing its members executing African Union soldiers during an attack on their base in Somalia in September. The video shows armed fighters rampaging through what looks like a camp for Ugandan troops. Al-Shabaab says it killed more than 50 Ugandan troops in the attack on a base for peacekeepers in the town of Janale. The video also shows an alleged Ugandan prisoner in handcuffs and other soldiers being shot at a close range with AK-47 rifles. It was reported on on by Site Intelligence Group, which monitors jihadi activities. The Burundian government says President Pierre Nkurunziza's address to the public last week on disarmament of civilians was inaccurately interpreted. Spokesperson Philip Nzobonariba says hot reactions over the address showed an inaccurate interpretation due to speculations of those who wanted to deliberately distort Nkurunziza's intent. There were reports that the president's speech and comments caused residents of opposition areas to flee their homes, fearing a bloody crackdown by security forces. Nzobonariba has reassured Burundians that government is committed to peace and security. The government of Burundi would therefore like to assure the national and the national community that the message of the head of state is no way a call for persecution against anyone, but rather a measure to restore peace and security throughout the national territory until there are no crime strongholds likely to threaten peace and security for law-abiding citizens. The government would like to remind the international community that everywhere in the world where terrorist groups operated by tank and people cities perceived recently, the details of the government is a primary to protect citizens, and that is what President Kurziza was emphasizing in the recent motion to the nation. Burundi is at a crossroads and the international community needs to wake up to the possibility of genocide. That's the stern warning given to the UN Security Council yesterday by the UN's genocide expert. At least 240 people have died and thousands have been displaced after months of protest and violence in Burundi this year. Matthew Wells reports. Unrest began as soon as Burundi's sitting president declared that he would seek a third term in office, despite there being a two-term constitutional limit. In July, he won a heavily contested election, and since then, political violence has become increasingly ethnic in nature. 
Briefing the Security Council, the UN Human Rights Chief, Zaid Rad al-Hussein, said that violence orchestrated by government security forces and pro-government militia was getting worse, with some opposition figures joining in the killing. Drug shortages continue to plague Malawi's public hospitals, despite Parliament having approved funds for such a cause. Parliament, which is now in session during the last budget session, approved a $2 billion national financial plan, which clearly stipulated the buying of drugs and other medical supplies for public hospitals. Ministry of Finance officials heap the blame or shortage on all other departments, saying the Ministry of Health has not used its funding from the 2014-15 financial year to date. George Mhanga reports from Blantyre. Treasury authorities said despite the high levels of hospital funding provided in line with the appropriated resources, some hospitals still experience periodic shortages. According to them, they are informed that most challenges that may have occurred in obtaining the commodities are on account of delays by the hospitals in asking from the Medical Central Stores Trust rather than due to an availability of funding. And finally, the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research in South Africa says this year is the warmest year ever on the global climate record. This says the Gauteng province is facing another heat wave amid level 2 water restrictions announced by the city of Johannesburg. Dr. Francois Engelbrecht from the Council explains the reason for the heat. Now, this is due to two effects. The first is the global warming effect which is, of course, related to the systematic warming of the planet. Now, what is making this year, the record warm year, is the presence of an El Nino event in the Pacific Ocean. And during El Nino events, very large parts of the Pacific Ocean warm up. So the presence of the El Nino event, in addition to the systematic global warming effect, is resulting in 2015 being the warmest year on record. I'll be back with headlines at half past five Central African time. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Seventeen oh six Central African Time. Let's start in Kenya, where opposition leaders and civil society organisations have presented more than one point five signatures of registered voters to the country's independent electoral commission, seeking amendments in the country's constitution. They're demanding amendments in the governance structures, a distribution of national resources to all countries, and to end to rampant corruption in the government and better the life of all Kenyans. But the Kenyatta administration has been strongly opposed to the opposition demands, including a national referendum ahead of the 2017 general election. Here's Mikey Konyo. The stage is now set for a titanic battle between Kenyan opposition parties and the government over the referendum campaigns ahead of 2017 general elections. This follows the launching of constitutional amendments initiatives termed as the COA or Save Kenya initiative by both the opposition and evil society officials here in Nairobi. They have collected and presented more than 1.5 signatures of registered voters to the Independent Electoral Commission seeking an amendment in the country's constitution. According to Mother Karua, leader of one of the opposition parties in Kenya, 
the initial objective of the new constitution has broken down and Kenyans have been increasingly disillusioned by the Kenyatta Jubilee administration. I think what's so broken is the behavior of the Jubilee administration. If you remember, way back in the um, beginning of 2014, in particular, the Right Honorable former Prime Minister asked for dialogue, and the Jubilee administration said no. Although the constitution is so clear that citizens have to be involved in issues of uh, governance, these are issues, some of which could have been dealt with through dialogue. The issue of raising the money, the amount of money going to the counties, issue of the electoral reforms that are needed. If the administration doesn't want to talk to citizens, citizens are not helpless. The constitution gives a leeway, and now citizens are speaking through the 1.5 plus million signatures, and they are saying, this is the way we are going to fix it because nobody has been available to fix it. So citizens want certain things decreed by the Constitution because we have a regime that is unwilling to engage its own citizens. You know, these are things that could have been left to discretion. But if we begin by wrong exercise of discretion, it's better to tighten them in the Constitution and give the parameters instead of leaving it to the benevolence of the executive how much money to give to the counties. The Constitution says not less than 15%. We are now capping it at 45%. Let the counties get 45% of the national revenue. So we won't have in future to argue with any executive. So it's not a question of changing it every time they change of regime. It's a question of prescribing it within the law. After presenting the signatures to the Independent Electoral Commission, the opposition leaders led by Ray Raudinga held a series of political meetings in Arab slums to drum up support for the constitutional amendments. Kenya's opposition leaders. This is the first time in the history of Kenya that ordinary people, citizens, through their signatures, can use the framework of the constitution to command the electoral body to start this process. Here we are bringing to Kenyans something better to improve what they fought for, what they voted for, and what they stand for in the new constitution. Issues of strengthening devolution to make sure that resources that are collected from Kenyans benefit all Kenyans. We do expect that the commission will move expeditiously to do what you know you must do in accordance with the constitution. And although the program is 90 days for the commission and 90 days to go to the assemblies, count assemblies, our expectation is, and indeed the expectation of Kenyans, if um, you can gain time, this will be of tremendous help. So we now are handing the ball to the IBC and we hope that the IBC is not going to stay too long with the goal, the ball in their, in their goal and they will kick it quickly to the county assemblies. By law, Kenya's Independent Electoral Commission is now required to verify authenticity of at least one million signatures presented to the Commission before presenting the draft bill to the Senate and Parliament and later for the national vote ahead of 2017 the general elections. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaiki Konyo in Nairobi. 
Amnesty International has appealed to the UN Security Council to press authorities in Burundi to tackle the human rights crisis in the country. The organization yesterday called on the council's meeting on Burundi's ongoing political and human rights crisis to include a clear and robust call on Burundian authorities to end the crisis, address serious human rights concerns and ensure people's safety. Burundi has suffered a dramatic rise in killings, arrests and detentions since President Pierre Nkurunziza launched a controversial bid to stand for a third term in April. But in an address to the Council, Burundi's Foreign Minister Elaine Aime Nyamitwe dismissed international concerns that his country is at risk of a Rwanda-like genocide as reports of killings by police continued. To discuss this further, we have on the line Sarah Jackson. She is the Amnesty International Deputy Regional Director for East Africa. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Sarah. Hello, thanks for having me. Uh, um, Sarah, how much proof is there that there are human rights abuses in Burundi? There's considerable proof now of human rights abuses in Burundi, of killings on a daily basis, bodies being found in the streets, extradition executions, and targeting of human rights defenders in general. And what do you then want the United Nations Security Council to do? The United Nations Security Council met yesterday and we're calling on them to step up their engagement with the Burundi crisis and support the efforts of the African Union who are leading in this situation. We're pleased that the Security Council has now appointed a special advisor to the Secretary General who is going to lead on this. They're also considering targeted sanctions against Burundian actors who are contributing to violence as well. As Amnesty International, do you agree with those that say that um, Burundi is at risk of a Rwanda-like genocide? What we see at the moment is a political crisis. We see politically targeted violence. We believe, following inflammatory statements by government officials last week, that this violence could increase and that we could see a risk of mass violence in the capital, Bujumbura. You've already said that you want the United Nations Security Council to support the efforts by the African Union, but what's your view um, about the role that the AU is uh, playing to address the crisis in Burundi? Well, the African Union made one of their strongest statements ever on the situation in Burundi earlier in October, Uh, They called for robust dialogue. They themselves are looking at targeted sanctions on the continent. Um, They have deployed human rights observers. Um, But what what we're looking for now is some of these words to turn into action. The situation is so serious, and it's important that this statement is quickly implemented and that they support and re-energize the mediation efforts which are to be led by President Museveni. The situation is so urgent. Action is really needed now. All right. So I'm going to ask you to stay on the line for us. We have to take a short break. Thank you. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. 
Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And the program you listen to is Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And my name is Spomelele Zondi. I'm going to be with you until 1800 hours Central African time this evening. On the line, we still have Sarah Jackson. She is the Amnesty International Deputy Regional Director for East Africa. And we are talking about the crisis in Burundi. Um, Sarah, thank you very much for staying with us. Now, the foreign minister in Burundi yesterday told the Security Council that the country is not in flames. Um, indeed, and, and the foreign minister is right that the, the country is not in flames. But what we see is serious violence. We see killings on a daily basis with complete impunity. There's been a lack of accountability. And the Brunzian authorities have the primary responsibility for the protection of the people of Burundi and must take action. Uh, do you believe that things are going to spin out of control pretty soon? as Amnesty International? We believe that there is a risk that things could spiral out of control, and it's, it's for that reason that it's so important that the Security Council follow through on their commitment. It's so important that the African Union put their words into action. Right. Um, now, you calling on the UN Security Council to um, quickly do something about this, but is there anyone else that you want to help in this situation? Well, the primary call is on the East African community. They've been leading the mediation efforts in the region. Those efforts have reached a stalemate. We want President Museveni, as the lead mediator, to step up now and get the different parties around the table to discuss urgent resolution to the human rights crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are optimistic that if that happens, then it can be resolved. If this happens, the situation can be resolved. But if it doesn't, the situation could well spiral out of control in, in the coming days and weeks. All right. Thank you very much for joining us, Sarah Jackson. We also seem to be getting a bad line there at the moment. Um, thank you, Sarah Jackson. Thank you. Sarah Jackson is with Amnesty International. She is the Deputy Regional Director for East Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka 
in Yaoundé. From an African perspective, listen to Channel African in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Still in Burundi, the government in the country says President Pierre Nkurunziza's address to the public on the 2nd of November on disarmament of civilians was inaccurately interpreted. In the clarification message read yesterday by government spokesman Philip Nzobunariba, he said hot reactions over the address showed inaccurate interpretations due to speculations of those who wanted to deliberately distort the intent of the head of state. This caused residents of, of opposition areas to flee their homes, fearing a bloody crackdown by security forces. He has been at Bagunkira. He's in Puchumbura. Following the message to the nation of President Pian Kurunziza on November 2nd, 2015, shouldered by the government high-ranked officials in their comments as they tour the areas known as insurgent areas in the capital Bujumbura, several reactions were heard in the national and international opinion. Philip Nzobanariba says the message was wrongly interpreted by those whose intention was to distort the intent of President Pian Kurunziza. For him, the situation has grown worse because the international community have failed to condemn the atrocities and their masterminds. He said the message in itself has no passage of calling the public to violence or genocide. For the government, those who play with genocide are those who rely on catastrophe to conquer the power because they feel elections cannot allow them to achieve to power. Since the beginning of this reaction, the government of Burundi has repeatedly condemned the terrorist drift that the insurgency movement was taking and has repeatedly called on the international community to exert sufficient pressure against those who provide weapons, train or provide funding to these criminals to get them stop such a dangerous move that might develop into a terrorist network hard to deal with in the long run. And as such is currently the case. It is therefore unbelievable that so far this nation will from the international community against these atrocities and their masterminds. Faced with this rampant terrorist situation created by criminals disguised as peaceful demonstrators who shortly developed into dark criminals, it is right for the responsible President of the Republic to take decision confirmed by the Constitution of the Republic. The message to the nation of November 2nd, 2015 was imperative. It was a final call after the grace period granted to hold deaths of illegal weapons by a decree exempting illegal weapon owners from criminal prosecution so that they hand in on their will these weapons without waiting for being exposed to criminal penalties under the law. Therefore, it was not a call for any violence whatever. In the light of different reaction, the statement running the message to the nation by the President of the Republic on November 2nd, 2015, the government of Burundi notes that the authors of this reaction were manipulated by hostile political circles because no passage of the message triggers violence or incite to genocide whose bitter experience has been endured by the people of Burundi since the independence of their country. Those who play with genocide are the very ones who rely on a national catastrophe to conquer the power after realizing that the electoral process offers no chance them something they constantly and loudly voiced before the international community.
eso de la comunidad internacional. Philip Zabonariba says Murunzi's address is in no way a call for violence, but rather a message calling for restoring peace and security in the country. He pledges the ongoing search operation will be conducted with maximum professionalism and that the population and their properties will be protected. The government of Burundi would therefore like to assure the national and the national community that the message of the head of state is in no way a call for persecution against anyone, but rather a measure to restore peace and security throughout the national territory until there are no crime strongholds likely to threaten peace and security for law-abiding citizens. The government would like to remind the international community that everywhere in the world where terrorist groups operated by tank and paper cities, as perceived recently, the duty of the government is primarily to protect citizens, and that is what President Kurziza was emphasizing in the recent merge to the nation. The government reiterates its commitment to use the maximum of professionalism in the work ahead designed in flexible, and would like to reassure the population of the areas concerned that everything will be done to protect them and their property. Following the president's address earlier last week, several top leaders, including the first vice president, Gaston Sinemo, security, defense, home affairs, and justice ministers, toured the grassroots, especially opposition strongholds, relaying President Skorunziza's appeal to citizens to surrender weapons. They warned on a fierce operation against owners of illegal arms, which prompted residents to leave their homes before November 7th. The deadline announced by President Kurunziza, the Hague-based International Criminal Court, ICC, African Union, the United States and United Nations have roundly condemned those speeches made by Burundian leaders and some have likened them to the politicians' rhetoric that incited people before and during the 1994 Rwandan genocide on the ground for the moment. The first search operation is on since Sunday in the two renowned opposition strongholds of Mutakura and Chiptoke, almost emptied of their residents, and no major incidents has been reported except reports on arrest of several young people from there. Fortunal Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira reporting from Bujumbura. Info at channelafrica.co.za if you want to get in touch with us. The problem of drug shortages in Malawi's public hospitals continues despite Parliament having approved funds for such a cause. Parliament, which is now in session, approved a $2 billion national financial plan during its previous budget session, which clearly stipulated the buying of drugs and other medical supplies for public hospitals. Judge Mohango is in Blenta. Minister of Finance officials heap the blame or shortage on the other departments, saying the Minister of Health has not used his funding from the 2014-2015 financial year to date. Secretary to the Treasury, Ronald Mangani, said government released funding in June after support from Norway and the Flanders 4.4 billion Malawi kwacha came to an end. But this is contrary to reports that district health offices, DHOs, did not receive funding for the June 2015, which resulted in reduced service delivery in district and central hospitals. Treasury authorities said despite the high levels of hospital funding provided in line with the appropriated resources, some hospitals still experience periodic shortages. According to them, they are informed that most challenges that may have occurred in obtaining the commodities are on account of delays by the hospitals in asking from the Medical Central Stores Trust rather than due to an availability of funding. But what are the views of some patients that I met in Blantyre? I hadn't been feeling well for some time and, and came to the hospital. But I uh, was very sad to actually be told that I should go and, and get the drugs myself. 
and it was a bit ironic because uh, recently uh, when addressing a political rally the president said the country had uh, bought enough trucks so it's it's almost like an insult so the hospitals are no longer places where people go to get saved but where they are told that you can go out and die my name is, uh, is Albert Bamus um, I've been at the hospital for some time now actually what is baffling me is that uh, since I came um, when I met the doctor they just recommended me to buy some drugs at an airport pharmacy however the decision to come here was that because I, I was, was that I cannot afford getting treatment or paying medical bills at a private hospital and so to, to myself I just feel like uh, there's no reason to say that these are public health services where we can get free services as it has always been said and uh, it always baffles me because it's not my first time to be to come to a public hospital and then being told that go and buy medicine at a pharmacy. And uh, it doesn't speak well to a nation at this time where, when we are, we are talking of 51 years of independence. I'm Smith in Bangombe. Uh, my original home is in Chis, but uh, I'm a resident here in Blanta. I have been sick for uh, over a month now. Unfortunately, when I went to the hospital, which happens to be a government hospital, I was told that they don't have um, uh, drugs, uh, therefore they advised me to go to um, uh, a private drugstore where I could purchase the drugs. This is unfortunate because um, as government is responsible to take care of us by providing uh, drugs in hospitals uh, which we can access uh, free of charge. Uh, it means this will also affect my budget, my monthly budget, because I did not plan to buy drugs. For your own information, it's very tough for me to part ways with some money to buy drugs. Sometimes procurement breaches, largely due to political meddling, have also contributed to the accumulation and discarding of expired drugs at national level. For example, in April 2013, the media reported that the cost of political interference and mismanagement in the drugs and other medical supplies procurement system led to the destruction of $2.3 million worth of drugs. But what is the take of Crispin Mkandawire, who is an environmental and social commentator on the development? To hear that uh, some drugs are being banned, I think... It doesn't really send a um, good message to Malawians. Uh, as you are aware that uh, most of uh, our Malawians, particularly in the rural areas, they go to hospitals and uh, come back without uh, getting any treatment because uh, there are no drugs in, in hospitals. And uh, to hear that uh, um, the, the central hospital will be uh, burning drugs because they are about to expire. I think it's a, a very sad development. Currently, World Bank has since forted the health sector supply chain, which it says has too many parallel systems. And central medical stores is now managing all drugs procured by donors and the government to supply to hospitals in the country. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. 17.30 Central African time in New South Wales, here Thank you, Spumalele. Making headlines, 
Somali militant group Al-Shabaab has released a video showing its members executing African Union soldiers during an attack on their base in Somalia in September. Drug shortages continue to plague Malawi's public hospitals, despite Parliament having approved funds for such a cause. And finally, the UN Security Council warns Burundi of the possibility of genocide. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Seventeen thirty-one Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, with Miss Pomela Lezondi, with you until eighteen hundred hours. Remember that you can also find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One, Channel Africa One on Twitter. The South African rand weakened slightly after statistics. South Africa released their September production output data. South Africa's manufacturing output rose zero point nine percent year on year in September, after dropping by a revised zero point three percent in August. The data comes days after the Department of Trade and Industry lowered barriers to domestic manufacturing. It's hoped this move will attract investment in the sector to South Africa. Demagato Lishoro filed this report. The rand was around 14.36 cents against the dollar following production data output from StatsSA. Market analyst at 27.4 Investment Managers Nadir Tokin explains. There's a lot of expectation that interest rates in the U.S. are going to be increasing. And if interest rates in the U.S. increase, that obviously results in a repatriation of a lot of foreign capital, particularly out of the emerging markets, back into the U.S. It's really coupled with some significant risk off trading that we've seen in the last couple of days. We saw uh, Chinese trade numbers coming out yesterday and we saw an 18% decline in Chinese imports and around an 8% decline in Chinese exports. Manufacturing went up 0.9% year on year in September after contracting by a revised 0.3% in August. On a month-on-month basis, production increased 2.2% and on a quarterly basis, manufacturing rose 1.4% from a contraction in the previous quarter. Dr. Azar Jamin is director at Econometrics. On the whole, the manufacturing figures for September were a lot more positive than one had expected. This is not to say that they were great. In the third quarter of 2015, improved considerably, and that means that there will be a positive impact overall. GDP growth for the third quarter. The manufacturing sector is in the doldrums, suffocated by weak demand, high input costs and fallen commodity prices. Challenges with reliable power supply and industrial action have seen South Africa's industrial sector take a knock. However, there's been assurances from ESCOM that there will be little power disruptions in the coming months. Dr. Jamin says there are a number of reasons for this. Partly load shedding, partly also though because uh, people are resisting higher prices partly also because the electricity-intensive users, such as metal processing activities in the mining sector, have seen a very sharp decline in demand for their products and so do not need to use as much electricity because their production has fallen. The Department of Trade and Industry has now lessened barriers to the domestic manufacturing of vehicles. This follows the Automotive Production and Development Program review findings. Under the program, which came into effect two years ago, 
car makers had to build at least 50,000 vehicles per annum before qualifying for benefits through the volume assembly allowance. But from January 2016, the allowance will be offered on a sliding scale from 10% for 10,000 units and rising to 18% for 50,000 units. This is good news for car manufacturers and could help change outlook for the sector. It could help attract foreign direct investment as it could see more car makers open plants in South Africa. Nico Vermeulen, a director at the National Association of Automobile Manufacturers of South Africa says the previous threshold presented a formidable challenge to manufacturers. The lower threshold, starting at 10,000, but obviously increasing over time, is intended to make it easier for newcomers or new entrants to come and start producing vehicles in South Africa. We are aware of a number of uh, importers that are currently looking at the possibility of moving from importation to local production. The real threat for South Africa to be excluded from AGOA is cause for concern, even though for now the manufacturing component of AGOA is still intact. If this is changed, it would put thousands of jobs on the line. AGOA has helped South African vehicle exports to grow to around $1.7 billion per annum, providing over 30,000 direct jobs and more than double in indirect jobs. In Johannesburg, I'm Dimakatsoleshoro. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Hundreds of experts from around the world are meeting in South Africa's coastal city of Cape Town this week to address the many challenges facing the health of mothers, babies and adolescents. Organized by the Universities of Witwatersrand and Cape Town, the 9th World Congress on Developmental Origins of Health and Disease is taking place for the first time on African soil. Professor Shane Norris is a senior researcher for the Mineral Metabolism Research Unit at the Medical Research Council in South Africa. So the Ninth World Congress of GOHAD is to showcase all the latest research and findings from scientists globally and to really stress the importance of how early life, particularly the first thousand days, so it's maternal and her health and nutrition during pregnancy and then her health and the child's health in the first two years of life, You add up that period and it's a thousand days. It's really just to stress the kind of impact what happens during that thousand days on trajectories for both health and ill health down the line. So in terms of development of type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity. And why the theme combating transgenerational risk of non-communicable disease in transitioning societies? How significant is it for South Africa? It's very significant because we are facing a complex health burden in terms of we're still dealing with undernutrition with 20% of children still stunted by two. We're now dealing with obesity in young ages. We've seen that emerge as early as in childhood. By early adulthood, about close to 30% of girls are either overweight and obese. By the time we get to late adulthood, 50% of women are obese. We've got 40% 40% or so 
high blood pressure. In the older age group, we're starting to see diabetes increase. So if we going to successfully try and tackle those conditions, we can certainly treat individuals that have those conditions, but we have to be focusing on prevention. And part of that prevention is to try and focus on what we can do early on in the life course so as to prevent those conditions manifesting in adulthood. Some of these challenges, Professor, that impact on the health of mothers, children and adolescents, are they similar to those of other countries from what you're hearing from your peers there? So certainly there's many similarities, both with high-income countries like America and the UK, as well as in other low-middle-income countries, even across the African continent. So we're now starting to see transitions. So what the UK and the US went through, say, maybe a decade or so ago, we started to see similar trends in African countries. And as they transition, as their economies grow and become more urbanized, we start to see all these shifts. And then we move away from infectious disease to non-communicable disease. But in often what happens, like in South Africa, we then just land up dealing with a double burden of disease. And what sort of solutions and interventions are needed at this stage in order to optimize health across the life of people? What needs to happen? So certainly I would look at it from two points of view. From an early life point of view, I would say focusing on maternal health during pregnancy as a critical aspect. So women who want to become pregnant is how to optimize their health before they conceive. And when they're pregnant, to attend regular antenatal clinics, get monitored, eat well, exercise, so improve their nutrition during that period. That will give the baby the first important part, which is that good start to life. Then as that baby grows through childhood and adolescence, critical elements to focus on is a healthy diet and physical activity. It's really important to promote physical activity both in childhood but also in adolescence, and then certainly good nutrition. So fruits, vegetables, balanced diet, diverse diet, and less high-energy, dense carbohydrates. 1741 Central African Time, the Green Climate Fund... Uh board has approved funds amounting to 168 million US dollars for eight projects and programs kickstarting the flow of climate finance to developing countries. Here's Channel Africa's Hilda Akekela who looks at the issue. Speaking to the media, GCF Executive Secretary Hela Chakrohu said the approved projects covering mitigation and adaptation measures are three in Africa, three in Asia Pacific and two in Latin America. She said of the three African projects, Malawi's proposal to scale up the use of modernized climate information and early warning systems has been allocated 12.3 million U.S. dollars. I'm happy to say that the Zambian and the first African meeting was tremendously successful because it had the first ever investments approved by the Green Climate Fund. Uh, There were eight investments approved. Three of them are in Africa. Um, there is a climate services uh, and information investment in Malawi. There is a, a land desalinized land uh, treatment in uh, Senegal, and there is a, a rollout of uh, rural renewable solutions for Eastern Africa. 
and Zambia's finance minister Alexander Chikwanda has commended the GCF saying the funds will go a long way in supporting projects aimed at mitigating the effects of climate change in developing countries. Mr. Chikwanda was speaking after signing a 300,000 US dollar grant agreement with the GCF executive secretary that will go towards the acceleration of national preparation for climate financing. It is worth noting that decisions you will make during this board meeting will either enhance the outcomes of the 21st conference of the parties. For countries whose projects were not successful for funding, Mr. Crowe said the approval signals the beginning of the long-range financing and encourage Zambia and other developing countries not to lose heart. She said with climate finance being a critical element of global climate talks, the approval of the first project proposals marks a major trust-building measure between developing and developed countries. This is just the beginning and it's a good beginning because it uh, allows all our partners including Zambia which is very active and is even a member of the board on behalf of the least developed countries it allows all of our partners to know what the board wants and the type of investments the board is looking for so that will accelerate the ability of countries like Zambia to bring forward their investments and uh, we all heard the inspirational uh, talk by the minister of finance of Zambia and we read with great interest the Zambian intended nationally determined contribution. Zambia has announced an ambitious uh, climate action plan which will require us all to work together and provide finance. And one of the GCF co-chairpersons Gabriel Costa said the first review of the project has been an enriching experience, one that allowed the board members a chance to reflect on the areas that need to be further enhanced to speed up support to countries that are already experiencing the devastating impacts of climate change. So you rightly quote the figure of 10 billion dollars which have been pledged promised by the developed countries uh, and um, those promises have not been translated into agreements. The reports by Hilda Akekelo. It's time for economic news. Good evening with your economics news this hour. Talks between South African President Jacob Zuma and German Councillor Angela Merkel in Berlin started today with trade high on the agenda. Zuma's state visit to Germany comes as both leaders are facing domestic criticism. Jack Parok reports from Berlin. President Zuma arrived in Berlin in the wake of recent student-led protests over a tuition fee increase at South African universities. Meanwhile, German Chancellor Angela Merkel has been slammed by the German press for her open-door stance on accepting asylum seekers in the ongoing refugee crisis facing the European Union. South Africa is Germany's largest trade partner on the African continent, however, and this meeting provides an opportunity for both countries to voice their mutual concerns and to take steps to maintain their well-established trade relationship. Jack Parrick, SABC News, Berlin. 
And the CEO of AMSCO, Kevin uh, Wakeford, says he doesn't know the source of the 350 million US dollars that the media has been reporting on in relation to the procurement of a new plane for President Jacob Zuma. His statement comes after reports that the South African Air Force Procurement Agency was planning to buy the plane for as much as $350 million. The issue has sparked a robust public debate. Wakeford, who was speaking at a joint briefing with Air Force officials, says the reports are unfounded. Single aircraft is simply not a reliable solution. And we've seen why not in the past. We've had to charter, uh, we've had to hire, we've had to rent. This is a request for information. I don't know where the $4 billion comes from, because quite frankly we can't afford that. And the demand for South African rent has continued to decline in Zimbabwe. This as the value of the currency depreciates against the U.S. dollar. The Bankers Association of Zimbabwe says the use of the U.S. dollar has increased by as much as 10% as a result of the weakening rent. In 2009, Zimbabwe introduced a basket of currencies after abandoning a virtually worthless currency. Economist Joseph Verecha. Presently, anywhere below 25-20% usage, but it's a ballpark estimate. There is certainly no chance, in our opinion, that the rand will be rejected in situ. There may be a decline, so the rand will still be very much a part of our, an integral part of our currency basket. Online taxi hailing service Uber has agreed a 14 million US dollar deal with South African vehicle finance provider West Bank to rent cars to drivers who can't afford to buy them. West Bank, which is an arm of lender first rent, will rent cars to Uber drivers who do not qualify for traditional car loans due to lack of credit history. Around half of car loan applications are declined in South Africa. West Bank will recoup the loan from the fares Uber drivers collect from passengers, lowering default risk. The amount drivers repay will depend on the level of business they are doing. Uber is currently valued at over 50 billion US dollars. And tight liquidity in Kenya's money market and central bank intervention have stabilized the shilling and prices, helping ensure sustainable growth. The central bank says it will improve banking supervision. This comes after mid-sized lender Imperial Bank was taken into receivership last month, rattling investors and the public. The receiver later confirmed substantial fraud and the privately owned bank. In recent weeks, the central bank has used a mixture of shilling mop-up operations and dollar sales to support the weakening currency. And that's your economics news. Thank you, Sunday Sports News with Figile now. Now, sports update this hour. The WADA Commission says in its report outlined on Monday that the 2012 Olympics had in effect been sabotaged by the inaction of national anti-doping authorities and the IAAF. Russia Sports Minister Vitaly Mutko says there was no evidence for the Commission's accusations. 
New IAAF President Sebastian Koh has given Russia a week to respond formally to the allegations. Australia's Olympic chef de mission Kitty Sheila says she hoped the IAAF's new president Sebastian Koh will have the courage to do what was required. If Russia is not in Rio, I think the reputation of athletics will actually be enhanced because the public watching will know that every athlete competing there is clean and is competing in the true spirit of the Olympic Games. Meanwhile, Russia's sports ministry says it is open to cooperating more closely with the World Anti-Doping Agency after it was implicated in a damning report. It says WADA's work would help Russia to perfect its anti-doping system and specialists were studying the report's findings. The report says widespread doping is state-sponsored and even secret services had been complicit. But the Kremlin has dismissed the report's accusations as groundless. Russia's spokesman Dmitry Peskov says proof of the claims is lacking. Australian race walker Jared Talent, an Olympic silver medalist behind a Russian subsequently found guilty of doping, reiterated his demand on the 10th of November that the IAAF award him the gold medal in the wake of an explosive report into systematic corruption in Russian athletics. The weather report also identifies systematic failures at the IAAF Athletics Well-Governing Body, which has been rocked by a French judicial investigation into fraud involving its former chief, Lamine Diak, and other senior officials. At London 2012, Thailand finished second in the 50-kilometer walk behind Russian Sergei Kidriapikin, who was found guilty of doping earlier this year and handed a three-year, two-month suspension by Russia's anti-doping agency. The ban was dictated to October 2012, shortly after the Games ended. The allegations are absolutely shocking. Um, to find out that the man who beat me in London, Sergei Kodyapkin, probably should have been banned early as 2011, but the IAAF held off on banning him until after the Olympic Games in London, so effectively letting him race, even though they knew he was a dope cheat, and then he went on and beat me for the gold medal. So it's, uh, it's pretty devastating. It uh, makes you very angry. Um, just that you, to know that your international federation, the, peop- the, the federation or the, the sporting body that should be protecting clean athletes was looking after the dope cheats. So um, it's pretty hard to swallow and, yeah, really disappointing to, to read that. On to football news, pressure on Franz Beckenbauer to explain payments and provide answers over a 20, 2006 World Cup scandal grew a day after the president of Germany's Football Association resigned despite insisting he had done nothing wrong. Wolfgang Nisbach, who was the vice president of Germany's World Cup organizer, says he's taking political responsibility for a controversial 6.7 million euros that was paid to FIFA allegedly used to bribe officials of World Soccer's governing body to vote for Germany's World Cup hosting bid. Meanwhile, UEFA General Secretary Gianni Infantino has vowed to withdraw from FIFA's presidential election if Michel Platini, the UEFA president who is serving a 90-day ban from all football-related activities, is allowed to stand. And finally, Lebohang Palula was crowned the 2015 Spa Grand Prix winner at an award ceremony held in Johannesburg on Tuesday morning. Palula improved on a 2014 performance winning two races which formed part of the Spa Women's Challenge. She was followed closely by her twin sister Lebu Palula in second place while Mapaseka Makanya and Nolin Conrad finished in joint third place. 
Speaking after being handed a trophy and a check of 10,000 US dollars, Palula says she had achieved her goal for this year. What I would like to say, 2015 was a great 15 for me this year, and I would like to thank each and everyone who was who took part in my life. Oh, uh, you know, the first ballet is it was so terrible, but I won't say that terrible because I was I was in a podium, I came third, but I was also aiming to win the race, but it didn't go according to the plan. But the second one, I came second again in PE, but the third one, I managed to be in, to win the race at Durban because that's my favorite province at the moment. Then Pretoria, I came third, and then I won the last by leaders. And with 2016 being an Olympic year, Palula is setting a side on qualifying for the global showpiece. And that's your sport news this hour. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty five Central African time. Opposition leaders and civil societies in Kenya seeking amendments in the constitution as we recap our top stories. The problem of drug shortages in Malawi's public hospitals continue. In economics, the global oil glut likely to take longer than expected to clear and may depress oil prices. And in sports, the WADA Commission says its twenty twelve report had in effect been sabotaged. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Pumela Lezondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, we're on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. On Twitter, it's Channel Africa One. Channel Africa One. We leave you with Am I Wrong by Nico and Vince. Way. I ain't trying to do what everybody else doing Just cause everybody doing what they all do If one thing I know, I fall but I grow I'm walking down this road of mine, this road that I go home So am I
I won't, won't. I don't wanna be right. 